Good, a good afternoon to everyone. Uh, thank you for coming back if you were here at my first talk. Um, really appreciate it. Um, today, uh, my second talk is going to be talking about chronic substance, I mean, chronic pain management and comorbid substance use disorders, not substance abuse disorders. That has changed, and it's the whole point of the talk. Um, I feel like that girl in the front, uh, when it comes to chronic pain management in the last 20, 30 years, um, it's kind of been a journey. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that journey. I'm going to talk about a little bit how substance abuse and dependence has changed to substance use disorder, and then how you can use a decision tree when treating patients who may have a substance use disorder. I have nothing to disclose. However, I work for the VA as a psychologist in an in interdisciplinary pain management uh, facility. Uh, so I'm here as a psychologist who has been practicing in the last eight, nine years in pain management. I am not an agent of the VA, and I am not here speaking on behalf of the VA. I got to make sure if I say that. So our learning objectives. Um, we're going to describe the circuitous journey the field of pain management has undergone. We're going to describe the high level of comorbidity between opioid use disorders and chronic pain. We're going to apply new strategies underlined by the Centers for Disease Control and the Guidelines for Pain Management. And we're going to evaluate how to select patients for opioid trials, assess for risk, and initiate opioid therapy. Uh, but only after exploring non-opioid and non-pharmacological strategies. How many of you were at the American Pain Society Conference in 2000? <laughs> so I wasn't there either. <laughs> I'm actually younger than I look. But um, what I'm told is, is if I was walking down the halls of the American Pain Society in the year 2000, you would see this poster plastered all over the place. And it said, opioid therapy in the year 2000, directing the future today. That was only 16 years ago. So our attitude about opioid therapy has shifted several times in the last 20, 30 years. And this is because of legal or medical uh, communities uh, letting us know what our guidelines should be in terms of how to treat chronic pain. Um, if you were here in the first hour, this should look familiar because it's actually the same exact slide. Um, what we know or what I learned is in 1961, there were a bunch of countries who got together and they had a single conference, one conference, on the use of opioid uh, medications in pain management. And what came out of that conference were two themes. The first theme was that people had the right to pain management. Everyone has the right, the human right for pain management. The other thing that came out of that conference is that there were countries who were not allowing the use of narcotic medications for pain management, and so they were encouraging some of those countries to start using those medications. Um, unfortunately, the U.S. came back, some regulatory organizations got together, and they pushed this message, as I showed you with the poster, right? And what happened is, is that patients started to believe that they were entitled to these opioid medications if they had a pain management or a chronic pain disease. 
And we as providers started feeling the pressure, right? We needed to, you know, uh, supply the demand. And so this reinforced some patient beliefs um, and reliance on medication alone. There was widespread dissemination of uh, opiates over the last 10, 20 years. Some safety measures were lax in terms of, you know, the placement and storage of these medications. And we saw a dramatic rise in opioid misuse and deaths uh, from overdose. Um, and that's when the CDC identified this as a health epidemic and released their guidelines of March of this year. So prescriptions have increased by more than 300% since 1999. I know what you, everybody's doing. Everybody's looking at their state to see which color that is, right? All right. Here's the interesting thing is that if you read the news in the last couple of weeks, there was a statistic that came out that kind of blew my mind. So in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, in, the, in the span of six days, they reported 174 deaths related to heroin or opiate overdose. Um, they were not the only ones. In West Virginia, they had 24, 26 deaths in the matter of a four-hour time span. And Louisville, Kentucky saw a three times increase in the number of opioid deaths, opioid-related deaths during the summer. So it's, it's been a problem. And I think what's changed is that we're actually talking about it. The news is, you know, spreading the message around. Um, and so I think that that's important. In 2013, we saw more than 16,000 people die in the U.S. related to opi opioid-related deaths. And since 2009, we used to have motor vehicle accidents as the number one uh, leading cause of death. Um, now that has taken a back seat. <laughs> no pun intended. And um, it's become opioid-related deaths has become the number one accidental death in the U.S. Um, what really has brought this into light has been the recent deaths of Prince specifically. Um, but there have been other people in the media who have died, Heath Ledger, Chris Farley, um, Brittany Murphy, those are some names that come to mind. So CDC released these new guidelines in March of uh, this year. There are 11 points. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through all 11. Um, but the guidelines are for the initiation, selection, and assessment of opioid therapy risk. Um, and this is based on the limited evidence that's been out there to show um, that long-term opioid use outweighed the risk um, and the improvement in functionality and quality of life. However, I'm going to give you four points that came out of that report. So the first point is, is they are recommending or they are ind indicating that we should be exploring non-opioid and non-pharmacological strategies before we go into opioid trials. We should require, not we, they are requiring providers to assess for the risk of overdose or the development of a substance use disorder, which is I'm going to talk about. We need to be keenly aware of patients' pain levels, and we need to be aware of what strategies the patient themselves is using when they are prescribed opioid medications. So this is kind of, you know, a lot of providers say they don't want to be police officers or they don't want to be juror. Um, I don't want to be a juggler either, and that's what it feels like sometimes we're juggling you know, what, what do I do? This person may really need opioid therapy, but I also have to take 
their safety in consideration. I've got to take the community's safety in consideration. So we feel like we're kind of juggling these two things. Um, what does this really mean for us as chronic pain specialists? Um, so if you work for any kind of hospital system, you probably will find that they have what we call a decision tree uh, when it comes to opioid trials or opioid or chronic pain management. Um, the one that I started off with was five pages long, very confusing. Um, so I made this really simple one, which is what I'm going to go over with you, but by no means is this the one, all right? So you'll notice there are six steps, or you may not notice that there are six steps. And so I'm going to go over the six steps with you. So the first step is you need to identify the patients that are in need of pain management. Um, and these are new patients or patients that are already established in your care. The problem that we usually face with providers is that sometimes they inherit patients, so it's new to them, or they are covering for another provider. Um, what I say is, is that that means they're new to you. So you treat them as if they were a new patient. Step two, so check, step one, we did that one. Step two is you're gonna conduct a comprehensive pain assessment. So depending on your discipline, you do that a little bit differently, but we all kind of come to the same close enough information. In addition, we wanna look at the psychological and mental health uh, um, status of the patient who is sitting in front of you. We wanna assess for the risk for addiction. Again, CDC is pushing that that is one of the things that we should be doing appraise the pain level and the patient's function. So not only is what is your pain score, but what are you ex actually doing? How are you doing it? What's your quality of life like? And then have a differential, uh, a differential diagnosis. So how is substance use defined? So American, the American Psychological Association about two, three years ago came up with the DSM-5. So all of my mental health people you know who you are. We are familiar with this, but some of our colleagues may not be aware of the change that has occurred. So before DSM-5 or before a couple of years ago, when a patient would come in, they would either be uh, diagnosed with a substance abuse disorder or a substance dependence disorder. It was very confusing. Um, and what they've done with this DSM-5 is that they streamlined it, and now it's all called substance use disorder. Um, and it's diagnosed if the patient exhibits a pattern of substance use uh, leading to impairment in their life. And it's manifested by two or more of the following in a, in a matter of a year. So if they're showing impaired control, that means they're using more than intended or prescribed. Um, they're a persistent, they have a persistent desire to use even though they've had unsuccessful attempts to quit. They're increasing the time spent using or getting or thinking about or planning on how they're going to get the medication that they're uh, using, uh, craving or have a strong desire for use. Their social impairment, we see that as they're uh, failing to fulfill major role obligations, so they're not going to work or they're not going to college or they're not taking care of their children or so on and so forth. Giving up important life activities due to use, so this is the person who doesn't go to the family reunion or the person who is not looking for employment. Um, continuing to use despite knowledge of the negative effects. They engage in risky use, so they're using this uh, in a hazardous way, so when they're prescribed a pill, 
they don't take it in pill form. What they'll do is they'll crush it, they'll snort it, they'll inject it. Again, they're engaging in a risky behavior with the medication or with the substance. They're continuing to use despite knowing that there are some negative effects of using this substance. And then pharmacological criteria, which either means that they've become tolerant or they have withdrawal symptoms when they're trying to detox from that um, uh, substance. So, according to the new DSM, if you have two to three of these symptoms, you are considered to have a mild substance use disorder. If you have anything from two to five of the symptoms, you're considered moderate. And if you have more than six, you're considered to have a severe substance use disorder. There's a wide range of prevalence rates out there in the research, but it's difficult to kind of figure out whether this is a true incidence of substance use disorder, uh, especially among chronic pain patients. So in, in 2005, there was a study that looked, this is before the opioid ep ep epidemic, that looked at chronic pain patients, and about a third could be diagnosed with a substance use disorder. So Morasco is um, the author, Morasco and colleagues, did a study in 2008 and another one in 2011. So in 2008, among 5,800 plus patients um, with chronic pain, they looked at their charts and looked to see if there was a substance use disorder documented. And about 20% had a documented substance use disorder. Most of them had alcohol as the substance. Uh, cannabis is also a very popular one, 16%. Prescription and illicit uh, opioids, 15% and then stimulants like cocaine and amphetamines, about 19%. In 2011, they did another review, and they looked at primary care settings versus an AIDS uh, clinic, and they found that in the AIDS clinic, those patients with chronic pain had a concurrent substance use disorder higher compared to primary care. So what we can glean from this information is that patients with substance use disorders may have a greater risk when it comes to aberrant behavior that is related to opioid therapy. Um, so example, um, you know, if they're prescribed an opioid, they may, may be likely to misuse or maybe even abuse the medication. Um, and patients with comorbid substance use disorders, either currently or in their past, uh, are potentially more difficult to treat because they also have comorbidities, including depression, anxiety, insomnia, things like that. So one of the number one questions that I get from providers is how do I know the difference? How do I know if somebody is misusing or how do I know if somebody is addicted? So here's this chart. I love this chart. This chart is from McNichols and it's from the guidelines for the use of buprenorphine in the treatment of opioid addiction. Um, and I think it's a nice resource to have, so feel free to take a picture or find the online. Um, so patients who have pain who may be just misusing, some of the things that you might see them do is um, sometimes they're going to uh, get the medications through a friend or a loved one because they, they have access to them. Or maybe sometimes they'll supplement with another opioid drug. Um, but rarely do they engage in any of these other kind of behaviors. Now you'll notice if a patient is addicted to the opioid, these are common things that we can see. So they're commonly compulsively using this medication. They're craving the medication even when they're not reporting having any pain. Um, they obtain these medications in non-medical sources. 
Um, they escalate the dose without any kind of medical instruction. Um, and they demand specific opioid agents. So one of the second questions that I get asked is, is oh, so if somebody tells me that one of these things, then they must be addicted. And the answer is no. It's if they have multiple ones of these, then it becomes a little clearer, right? Okay. So we've kind of figured out if this person is misusing or abusing the medication. Now we need to go to step three, which is we've got to determine whether this is an acute or chronic pain condition, right? And we need to educate the patient about the difference. My job, or the thing that I find myself doing the most, is educating patients who have transitioned from an acute pain condition who are now living with a chronic pain syndrome. Um, and when you talk to them about it, they're like nodding their head like, yes, this is exactly what's going on with me. And so they're more likely to buy into the biopsychosocial approach to pain management. Um, but they need that little bit of education. So if you don't listen to anything else I say in the next 30 minutes, this is probably the most important slide, so you can pay attention to this. This is from my friends at the Seattle VA. They do a lot of provider education when it comes to pain management. And they developed a website where they teach providers about how to treat chronic pain and this decision-making model and things like that. What you'll see is that when a patient has acute pain, we, are, we usually take a biomedical approach to their pain management. In that case, the patient's role is to kind of take a step back. Let the provider do what they need to do. They are the expert. Um, the time span is short term, and really our goal is to cure their pain. We're going to use everything in our power and all that is available in medicine to help this person feel better. Um, and we're identifying a cause, we're treating a, system, a symptom, and for all intents and purposes, mind and body are separate. Now, that's if within you know, a sudden uh, injury or you know, within a three to six month time span. After the normal time of healing, or after that three to six month time span, it is now considered a chronic pain syndrome. Notice, this is the third column, how everything changes. Completely. So when someone has chronic pain, the patient's role is now active. They are now more responsible for their pain. A lot of pain management is self-management. We as providers become teachers, role models, I swear to God, I feel like a cheerleader sometimes, <laughs> whatever. Whatever gets them there, right? The treatment is long-term, and we are trying to restore their function and improve their quality of life. We are no longer looking for a cure. And then, this is how we do this is by doing a comprehensive biopsychosocial evaluation, as CDC is recommending, and we are identifying pain as a more complex problem, and we're, in all tense purposes, we're looking at the whole person. The mind and body are both involved. All right, so now we've educated the patient. They have a chronic pain syndrome. What do we do now? Step four, we're going to outline our treatment expectations and review the options that we have. So I'm going to say, I'm not here to cure your pain. However, I have 20-plus different options for you to choose from. Um, here are the 20 different things that we have available for you for pain management. I want you to tell me what makes you excited. What is the thing that you are going to continuously keep up with and you're going to do on your own, right? Things to consider when offering the evidence-based therapy and all the therapies that are out there. There is no evidence, none, that one treatment is better than the other. 
And it's really based on the intensity and how invasive you want to get with the patient that you're working with. And we can use a pain ladder, which I'm going to show you one in a minute. We're also going to look at some complementary and alternative medical therapies. So the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine in 2013, I think it was, released a systemic review of all the literature, and they found that, for the most part, things like acupuncture, behavioral therapy, relaxation, hypnosis, biofeedback, spinal manipulation, massage, so on and so forth. There's a whole bunch of them. There is research to support that they are effective when it comes to pain management. So I'll talk to them about that. What we find in the research that we do is that most patients are willing to try complementary and alternative medicine if they know about it. So just by educating them about the options that are available, you can get someone to have another option. And then again, we're going to expand the conversation from solely focusing on their pain level, but we're also going to look at how are you doing? How are you functioning? What's your quality of life like in the conversation? I like cartoons, so you'll see a bunch of them. Um, so what we've seen in the field is that providers tend to be eclectic and flexible. We're flexible in what we will prescribe. Um, and overall, the research is showing that there's only about a 30% reduction in pain. I mean, that's the standard we use when we do research, is if something shows more than a 30% or a 30% reduction in pain, it's considered good, right? And that's kind of poor, right? It's not really that great. So here's the treatment ladder. This comes from Dolly and Olson. They wrote a uh, provider's guide to spinal cord stimulation, which is why it says implant therapy on the top. But I like the ladder because, again, this is something that I sit down with the patient and I say, look, you came in here having used treatment from another facility or from another provider. I don't know where they started. I don't know where the decision was. I haven't talked to that person yet. However, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to start from the beginning, and I'm going to say, did you use insets? Have you done physical therapy? Have you tried spinal manipulation? Do you have a TENS unit? Are you using it? What about a nerve block? Have you drawn those? Now, what I think is very interesting is that if you look, right above behavioral programs, which is what I engage in, right, is what? Corrective surgery. Here's a really funny statistic. About 70% of the patients that I see have failed back surgery. And when you talk to them, none of them have done any of the things underneath. And so when you tell them that, so the first question I usually get is, is you're telling me that I could have avoided surgery? And I say, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> but let's try some of these things. What you're going to have to live with something Let's try to see if any of these can make you a little bit more comfortable, right? In, in psychotherapy research or in the mental health research, there was a, a lot of debate about how effective psychotherapy was about 20, 20 years ago now. Um, and what we found in psychotherapy research is that basically it didn't matter what type of therapy you were using. They were all about the same in terms of effectiveness. Isn't that what we're kind of seeing with pain management? They're effective. They're all about giving us the same amount of relief. So in psychotherapy, they called that the dodo effect. Because in the Alice in Wonderland story, the dodo bird said, everybody deserves prizes. Everybody's good, right? Well, I'm saying, well, why don't we call this the Manamu effect, right? Manamu is the cousin of the dodo bird. 
It's a little different, right? But same idea for pain management. The number one predictor in whether a patient gets better is what? If you were here in my first hour, you know the answer. The relationship with your provider. The patient and provider relationship is the number one predictor of whether someone will get better or not. With a rewarding relationship, we know there's better outcomes. We also know that the patient is less likely to seek assistance elsewhere. A lot of these patients are coming in having tried several different facilities or several different providers, right? If they have a close relationship with you, they're less likely to do that. They're also going to reduce the risk of conflicting treatment plans. You know, I give them one plan, you give them another plan, somebody else, then they get confused. They don't know which one to follow, right? And this reduces the risk for further confusion. So then the second question I get is this, so when do I consider opiates then? So notice we're at step five. Now we're going to consider opiates. We've considered the non-opioid and we've considered the non-pharmacological options that CDC is recommending. Now let's talk about some opioid therapy. So number one, only after, only after all those other treatment options have been exhausted should an opioid try to be considered. We should do a careful risk-benefit analysis on every patient that we're prescribing opiates. We should do routine assessments, so analgesia, activity, adverse effects, aberrant behaviors, affect. We sh if, now, if we do that and we say that the risk outweigh the benefits and you're a primary care provider or a nurse practitioner or someone who functions on their own, they have their own practice, you might consider referring this patient to a pain, specialty, a pain specialist or to a tertiary interdisciplinary rehab program. Um, so, for example, I work in the VA in a CARF-accredited interdisciplinary pain team. And so that tends to be where providers who have the complicated cases send those very complicated cases to, to the team. We are a team. There's multiple providers involved. There's most, multiple people involved in the treatment plan. So we may be able to see something different, or we may be able to provide opioid therapy, but a very, very closely monitored way um, versus someone who only functions on their own. Um, if the benefit outweighs the, outweighs the risk and you're able to follow the person, then sure, you can consider opioid therapy. Now, in addition to that, you can use other tools. And I talked about this in the last hour, but I'm going to talk about it again. These are all the tools that are available at your disposal that you can use to help you with that decision-making process. So number one, do you have a signed opioid agreement? If you have an opioid agreement on there, it should outline behaviors that you are expecting from the patient by prescribing these medications. And what's nice about it is that it also outlines the behaviors the patient should expect from you. Random urine tox screen, so random is an important word here. So sometimes patients will show up at the pain clinic, they said, well, if I would have known, I'm like, well, that's the whole point, <laughs> right? So random urine tox screens, random uh, observed urine tox screens, if that is possible. I've had cases where people will bring urine in a, in a cup and use that as their urine, or they'll put it in a baggie and then act like they're peeing. They'll come up with a lot of different options. So observed if, if that is possible, but even if it's not possible, get a random urine tox screen, and that at least is something. Prescription drug monitoring database. So every state, I think every state now, has not all states. 
Okay, thank you for the correction. A lot of states have 49 out of the 50. Who's the, who's the, who's the last one? Missouri. Well, all right. So let's use Missouri. I practice in Missouri. I don't have the prescription drug monitoring, so what do I do? I'm going to look at the states around Missouri. I'm going to look at Illinois. I'm going to look at Kansas. I'm going to look at Ohio. Okay, thank you, Ohio. Um, so for example, we practice in Chicago. Chicago is in the border of three states. And so when a patient comes to our clinic, we don't assume that just we're going to look at the Illinois state prescription. We look at the Indiana, we look at the Michigan, and we look at the uh, Wisconsin. Um, so Missouri people, you can do that at least, is look at the places that are around you to see if they are getting prescriptions from those locations. Um, opioid risk tools, there's a whole bunch out there. I really like the soap. It's the one that I've used in the last eight years. The reason I like it is because it's quick. It's 14 questions. The questions are not very clear as to what they're asking these questions for. Um, and it, it does help you decide whether the person that you are testing needs to be followed a little bit closely uh, or if they are okay uh, with a looser treatment plan. And then, again, if you are able to schedule frequent follow-up appointments, right, then great. There's no problem. What's frequent? Two weeks, I hear. Depends, right? Is six months frequent? Okay, is three months frequent? Okay, good. All right, you guys know, good. So frequent is every two weeks or maybe once a month, right? That's, that's more frequent. If you're not able to follow them that closely, probably not a good idea. Another question that I got after the last talk was, so if somebody gave me a positive urine screen for cocaine, do you cut them off? And I said, it depends. I don't base my decisions only on one piece of data. I use multiple pieces of data because if it comes back later, I want to be sure that I can show what my thought process is in my note, right? which is why documentation is so important. If I did a urine tox screen and they were positive, and they've had urine tox screens in the past and they have not been positive, and this is the only time they've been positive and everything else shows that everything is okay, I might prescribe it one more time and then redo this process again. But if this person has a history of urine tox screens, different decision, right? But I want to make sure I push the idea of not only one piece of information is enough. You need multiple pieces of information to make a decision. All right, so I'm going to go over five cases, no, six cases, and I'm going to show you how you can use these tools in the decision tree when treating these different cases. And if you were here the first hour, they're the same cases. All right, case number one. Patient presents with increasing pain complaints and requests for dose increases while decreasing activity. Um, and there's no indication for the opioid is helpful. I use opioid, but you know what? Let's do it for fun. Let's change it. I have a lot of patients coming in asking for scooters. Are you guys getting those? Or handicapped decals, right? Or service dogs. Okay, so let's do scooter. The other two are a little bit more complicated. Let's do the scooter. So the patient comes in and is asking you for, so they came into the appointment walking. <laughs> My office is two buildings away from the parking lot. 
no signs of distress, right? Comes in with a positive opioid screen for, I don't know, cocaine, right? And is asking me for a scooter. What do you do? No, right? Thank you. Explain the importance of physical activity. The thing that I am tired and I'm blue to the face in talking with patients is that if two things are not happening, we're not going to see any improvement. The first is movement. If they are not moving, they're not going to get better, number one. And number two, if they're not sleeping, that's the second one, right? So if I'm giving him or her, him or her, a scooter, am I going with or against that, that policy? Against, right? It doesn't make sense. Okay. So let's go back to the opioid thing here, right? So first thing you're going to do is you're going to make sure you have no evidence of pathology, right? So the physician's going to do that. We might sit down and review the opioid agreement and talk about the, the possibility of opioid hyperalgesia. You know, the way that I explain it to patients is, is, you know, there's a line. If you go above that line, it could be harmful. And if you go below that line, we're not treating you. We got to figure out where that line is. Right? And so if you're playing around with that line, we don't know where that line is. They get that. They understand that. Check the urine drug screen. Set up more frequent appointments, as you know, not three to six months after, either two weeks or a month after. Refer to physical therapy. Again, I'm not a physical therapist. I don't know what this person's able to do. So I'm going to refer them to a physical therapist so they can do an evaluation and potentially provide therapy. Offer non-pharmacological options. This might be a patient who I say, you know, spinal manipulation might be interesting for you to try out, or massage therapy. There's research to show that both are effective for pain. Um, and refer them to the pain education school program. So we are blessed at um, our facility to have a pain education school program where we teach all our patients who have chronic pain about the 23 different treatments that we have for pain management in the hospital system. Um, what we do is, is we define what the treatment is, how it's helpful for their cases, and then also how, most importantly, how to get it. Um, and then what we do is we encourage those patients to come up with a comprehensive pain management plan. Instead of us telling them, this is what you need to do, we're saying, what gets you excited? Is there anything out of these 23 things that you're like, wow, I want to try that out, and let's try that out. Let's see how that goes, as opposed to arguing about whether you're going to get an opioid or not. So I'm not rejecting them. What am I doing? I'm redirecting them. I'm saying, look over here. Look at this over here. All right. Number two. Patient comes in as a walk-in and is reporting lost or stolen medications. And everybody in the last hour said, yep, I've had this before, right? All right. So first thing we're going to do is go over the opioid agreement. Some people have a one-and-done policy. That's what we have. We give them one chance. That's it. Some people have a zero tolerance. You should know which one you have, right? Number two, we're going to determine if there's any cognitive impairment or if a neurological evaluation is in order, right? Maybe this person thinks they lost them, but in fact, there's some dementia or there's some cognitive uh, disorder going on here. So I actually had this happen to me. Uh, about two weeks ago, I had an elderly gentleman who came in who was swearing up and down that somebody was coming into his room and taking his opiates, um, but he's in a facility where it's kind of locked down, 
and I couldn't understand how somebody could break in without a key or some access. So what did we do? We sent him for a cognitive evaluation. He did, in fact, have cognitive decline. Um, we also talked to him about, you know, the safety, the need for the safety of these medications. We talked to him about locking up the medications, and we also talked to him about taking him off of the medications, which is the avenue he went for, thankfully. Um, determine if there's impairment due to substance use. Determine if they're misusing the medication, running out early, giving it away, or selling it. So the most heartbreaking case I've had was when I first started working in pain medicine. I had a young man come in, young man. He could have been like 20 years old. He would come in. He came in prescribed with opiates. He would come in, looked pretty good to me, actually looked better than I did, right? Was walking around with no, no assistance. Got to talking to him for a little while. Come to find out his twin had been diagnosed with cancer, and they were dying. And so... I kind of kept that in the back of my head, kept my eye on him the couple of times he came in. And finally, I met with him and I said, hey, how's your brother doing? And he's like, oh, he's not doing well. And then he tells me, but I've been giving him my opioid so that way he has some treatment because he has no insurance. Come on, what am I supposed to do with that? So what I said to him was, I'm so sorry to hear this. Sometimes these medication uh, uh, providers, these um, companies, will help people that are in need. So we connected him to one of those programs to get medications for his brother. We tried to help him the way we could, not by giving him the opiates, because he was really pulling at those heartstrings, I'm telling you. Um, and that was a really hard case. So sometimes there are reasons why people are dispersing, and it's not because of financial gain. We always think that that's what it is. There's other issues that might be happening. They live in an unsafe environment. Um, you know, uh, it's important that we talk to them about this is a shared responsibility, not only of the provider, but the patient who's being prescribed the medications. Discuss non-opioid and non-pharmacological options. Refer them to the pain education school program. Patient urgently calls you with increased pain and then shows up to your clinic unscheduled and is asking for a refill. Does this ever happen? Yes, this is familiar, right? So first thing I do is I review the opioid agreement with them, and I say, clearly it states no early refills, right? Then I ask for the reason why they're asking for an early request. If it's an emergency, I refer them to the emergency room or urgent care. The other thing is, is within our system, we have to, we are required that if a patient comes in, to see them that day. So I may not be able to see them when they walked in, but they may have to wait until the end of the day when there is an opening to see that person. I tend to discourage that, and how I tend to discourage that is I say, look, you're coming in as a walk-in, there are patients waiting that have to be seen, so the time that I'm gonna be able to sit down and talk to you is not gonna be a lot. You deserve better than that. You deserve more time. We deserve to sit down and actually talk this out so why don't we schedule something later in the week and we'll meet and we'll have a full-on conversation about this. Because if I see you right now, it's not going to happen. No opioid refills, remember? And so buying yourself some time, giving yourself some time, as opposed to feeling the need or the pressure that you have to address it at that moment. 
Stress to the patient that the deserve. Okay, yeah. Set up frequent uh, visits. Address the behavior if it starts becoming a pattern. If they start doing this every month, then then that is not an emergency. That is a behavioral concern. And don't treat patients with opioids if you cannot follow them adequately. You ordered a urine screen during your patient's last visit, and it comes back negative for a substance you're prescribing and positive for a substance you didn't prescribe, or both, or one or the other. First thing you're going to do is review the opioid agreement. So are you guys seeing a pattern? The opioid agreement is very important, right? Make sure you have an opioid agreement. So review the opioid agreement. Send out for a confirmatory test. So sometimes there are rare cases in which someone will, pop, will show up as positive for something. Um, so for example, for opiates, and they consumed you know, a huge uh, bag of poppy seed bagels, like this big. <laughs> I, I'm not one to judge. So maybe that's possible, right? Um, there are circumstances, and I don't have the. I thought I had the information on the slide, and I don't. Um, but there is um, information out there of how to, what to look for, or what questions to ask, in terms of substances that could turn up positive for a urine tox screen. Um, they also the urine tox screen is different where you are. Not everybody has the same level of detection. So some places their detection levels are too high. Some places they're too low. So you need to know where the detection level is in your specific facility. Um, and you also need to know what those other substances may be that could cause somebody to be positive for a substance. Um, determine if there's diversion, if the person's sharing, um, if they're escalating without any uh, provider you know, following it. Use the state prescription monitoring program. Um, and if this is a repeat offender, like I started off by saying, then that's someone who I'm probably going to titrate them off of, um, the recommendation I'm going to make is that they be titrated off their medication, right? Um, but if this is a first-time offender, they're not clear as to why they're positive, they're not showing any other aberrant behavior, again, I'm not going to decide it on one thing. I'm going to make sure I have multiple pieces of information in order to reach the decision that I'm making. I'm going to make sure that I document that, right? Uh, refer to addiction services if the patient is positive for substance use, and offer non-opiate and non-pharmacological options. So my favorite is to refer patients to acupuncture, because the acupuncturist that we use, uh, his specialty is in substance use disorders, and the research is very positive um, when it comes to acupuncture and substance use disorders. So again, offering them something else. They may not go to addiction services because of the stigma that's related to that or prior failure, but maybe they're open to acupuncture. Try that. Be open to something else. Case five. Patient's upset and is also making substance use and homicidal threats after being told that you are going to discharge or discontinue their opiates. Again, this is happening a lot more, right? So the number one thing that I tell all my providers is, number one, make sure you are safe. When you sit in your office, make sure that you are the closest person to the exit. That's funny, huh? Because most of the time, where are you? You're pinned inside, right? So what does that mean? that means that you're in a dangerous position. So what I've taught my providers to do, because they're set up that way where I work, 
is I tell them to start scooting over a little bit. <laughs> if it's not going very well, or if the person escalates, right, I tell them to scoot over a little bit. Some providers I've talked to, and they have rearranged the room, so that way their safety is important. But your safety is the most important, number one. Number two, when they start speaking louder, you start speaking softer. So when they come in and they're like, you're a blah, 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 and I hate you, and you're the worst provider. I've never had this problem before. Oh, I can't go that loud. But if I kept going louder, right, and I go, I'm so sorry why you feel that way. I mean, I, I'm trying to do the best that I can. <laughs> and what you'll find them do is they'll go, what? <laughs> and then I'll do the same thing. I'm just trying to do the best that I can. You know, I have your same, you know, and, and then they'll, they'll de-escalate. They'll come down because they want to hear what you have to say. Sometimes I'll go. <laughs> Recognize the patient is angry. I have sat so many times sitting with providers, and the provider has not addressed the elephant in the room. Patient is pissed off already because someone pissed them off. Their traffic was bad. They couldn't find a parking spot. Someone was disrespectful to them. They had a bad altercation with another patient. Um, they don't want to see you, right? And they come in, and they're... If you spend the whole 20 minutes that you have with them, and they're not kind of being an active participant in the assessment, you're wasting your time. So stop what you're doing, put everything down, and look at them and say, you look angry. What happened? They'll give you everything, they'll calm down, and then you have enough time to get the assessment done and actually get the information that you need. But if you try to push through the assessment without de-escalating them, you're not going to get a good assessment. Remind the patient that making threats is in the pain agreement. So in our pain agreement, there is a section that talks about aberrant behavior. And one, in the, one of the things that we point out in there is that if you come into our clinic and you start yelling and screaming and throwing canes at us, we are going to discontinue your care. So we review that with them. And how I review with that is that if they're yelling and I'm going, remember, sir, that we talked about your opioid agreement. <laughs> right? Express to that making those types of threats is serious. People think that it's not that serious. It's really serious. If you come to my clinic and you say that you're going to hurt me or you're going to hurt someone else or you're going to hurt yourself, I'm going to call the police immediately. Sometimes you can tell, though, right? If this person has no history of mental health, they have never mentioned anything about suicide to you, and now out of anger they're saying that, again, you want to diffuse the situation, make sure that that's what they're saying, and 90% of the time, they'll be like, no, I just said that out of anger. And I explained to them why that, that should not be used. Because the next time, there will be a police officer standing behind me. Um, document this behavior in the chart. Here's the thing that I don't understand, is I document everything. And when I get another provider, and I look at their note, and they haven't documented anything, it really upsets me. And I know that that provider did it. And so I don't have anything to stand on. I don't know what they did. I, I kind of think I know what they did, but I have no idea what they actually did. And so I document in my chart. Here's the funny thing is I actually go afterwards and I say, hey, this person made a threat. Has that ever happened to you before? And they're like, oh, yeah, they just did that a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> Would have been nice if that was in the chart. <laughs> so 
So I use that as a teachable moment. I say, you know, next time, could you give me a heads up? Because that would have been really helpful. I would have started there, not 20 minutes later, right? So documentation, document, document, document. Consult, debrief with other providers, and recognize that setting boundaries is important work. We talked about this the last hour. All right, the last study. So a patient comes to your visit appearing intoxicated um, or over-medicated, and they also continue to report taking their opiates as prescribed. So they may not be a good historian. So I get their story, and I ask for their permission to talk with somebody if somebody came with them, or in most cases, I have to make a phone call. And I talk to one of their loved ones, and I say, hey, I'm really worried. So-and-so came in today, after they gave me permission to call you. So-and-so came in today, and they looked really sleepy, or they looked like they were about to pass out. Has that been happening a lot? Oh, yeah, man, he's been sleeping all over the place. Every time we go somewhere, he's falling. What does that tell me? That's information, right? Determine if drug interaction or overdose or underlying medical problem. Is this person taking an over-counter medication? Is this person taking a supplement or some herb that they read online in addition to what I'm prescribing that may be conflicting or may be interacting with what's, what's prescribed to them? I need to know that, right? We need to know that information. Use a urine screen, right? We talked to that to death. Refer to opioid services and offer detox. That's something that they offer. And refer to the emergency room if you're that concerned. Any other case that you guys want to throw out there before we stop for today? Yes? So the person has a negative urine tox screen. There's nothing else. Any other history you can give me? Okay, that's happened to me several times, right? And so the reality is, you say, why So let's do a poll. We're not going to put this all on me. We're going to do a poll. <laughs> Show of hands of people that would give it to them. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. What? Oh, okay. Ask more questions. All right. So let's do the decision tree, right? Um, let's see. What is that? What else is this patient doing? Okay. My question is: Is what else is the patient doing in terms of care? What other treatments is this person seeking out? Okay. Other ones. All right. Have you talked to them? Have you gone over the opioid agreement with them and discussed if they were negative for a prescription that was prescribed to them, what the consequences of that was? Right? So, so what I would say is, is, is first make sure you have several different pieces of information, right? Is this person seeking other treatments? What are those treatments? How engaged are they in the treatments? If somebody tells me that they did physical therapy, Six months ago, I say, okay, what are you doing now? Are you doing the exercises? Oh, no, I ain't doing it. Then you're not doing physical therapy. 
So are they engaged in another therapy? I go over the opioid agreement. I go over the urine tox screen, right? Maybe I'll go over the state prescription monitoring just for fun, right? Because I have that time. Um, that was a joke, people. All right. Um, what else? What else would people ask? Yes. So in my case, since I'm a, ph a psychologist, I would probably refer to the, the pharmacist. Since I'm a psychologist, I would refer to the pharmacist if I have access to one or to the physician who is prescribing. Anything else? Yes. Right. So the, the gentleman was saying that if you're able to prescribe, I'm going to summarize what you said. Basically, if you're able to see the patient more frequently, give them a short-term dosage and see them more frequently. So instead of giving them a month's supply, give them a week's supply, see how they do, and then see them a week and then do it that way, reevaluate. But again, here's the issue is, is if you have time to do that, if you don't have time to do that, you really have to, cons whoa, you have to consider for yourself if that is a practice that you want to engage in. Any other questions before I close? Yes. Say. Yes. So the question is, is on the careful risk and benefits assessment, um, there on NPR and other news outlets, they've been saying that there's a potential for discrimination. The research does show that there are differences in how we prescribe the medications and how we approach patients with chronic pain. Um, what I say in those situations, in, in the, my practice is, is I gather all the data that I have and if all the data objectively tells me this is not a case that I should continue opioid therapy, then the data supports that decision. But if I don't have the data and I'm just taking people off, then I don't have the support that I need. So really the idea is, is have the data, document that you have the data, so if you make that decision, that's not something you have to be concerned about. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Last question. Do you, do you have uh, every time we do a urine tox screen, we have to let the patient know that we are asking for the urine tox screen, but we just don't tell them before they show up. We tell them when they show up. Yes, and then we get their permission. Yes. All right, thank you for coming in. I hope that was helpful for people. If you have any questions, feel free to come up. Otherwise, everybody enjoy.